Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. Today, we are so excited to have on Dr. Anne-Marie Everett. She's a board-certified women's health specialist since 2017, and she's passionate about making evidence-based and comprehensive care accessible and routine for pelvic health concerns, especially for pre- and postpartum people. She is a co-founder and co-writer of Pop-Up, an online educational and community platform for people with pelvic organ prolapse and the providers who serve them. Welcome on, Anne-Marie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We're so excited to have you. So tell us, what are you currently up to? Oh, what am I not up to? I just made homemade ice cream. No, but professionally. (laughs) (laughs) What flavor though? Hold on. (laughs) Strawberry graham cracker. What? Oh. Oh, it is so good. The pandemic has really deepened my domesticity, but professionally... I work for Agile Physical Therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I currently serve two on-site contracts for large companies in the area. So I am partially in office, but primarily still working virtually, and I see some private clients virtually on the side as well. Awesome. I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit more about pop-up as well. Yes. Pop-up is uh, pop, meaning pelvic organ prolapse. We realize that we use pop a lot and not everybody knows that term, but it makes for a catchy name. So uh, pop-up is a program that I co-founded with a dear friend and colleague of mine, Haley Shevener, who is a strength and conditioning specialist and a perinatal exercise specialist. And she came to me and basically said, I think there needs to be a better resource out there. Do you want to make a series of infographics with me? <laughs> and in retrospect, that was such a, a fun memory because now it's hundreds of hours of written and video content and professional coursework and a Facebook group that's moderated by Haley and I for users. But basically, it was trying to fill a need for what we realized wasn't there, which was a really comprehensive and evidence-based guide for people with a prolapse diagnosis that really acknowledged the reality of the experience of it. Because I think that for her own personal experience with POP, And having to go through that journey largely alone and largely sorting through the both abundance of bad information and the lack of good information by herself led her to really want to fill that need for people. And she pulled me into it because I was nominally a specialist in it. And yet, as I started to really dig into this with her, I realized that I really didn't know anything. And, and it was just this really powerful, <laughs> humbling and powerful experience to be confronted with the other side of things. And I was a relatively young clinician, but I did have, I thought, a decent amount of experience and training and really quickly learned that there was a lot that I didn't know, a lot that I couldn't reconcile about reality with what I had been trained to do and to say. And Pop-Up was born out of a need to speak to 
what is the evidence, but also how do we support the psychosocial needs of people with a prolapse diagnosis? Because they are large and they are complex and they're a place where I think we really have a lot of power to do good, but ultimately our profession often does harm. So that's my very long-winded explanation of what it is. It is all things related to prolapse. Hopefully it's a support group, it's education, it's exercise programming, it's professional education, but the hope is that it really does fill the need for what we think is the highest quality of education for people. In my observations of your Instagram page and checking out your website and all of the content that you produce, my absolute favorite thing about pop-up is the removal of a lot of this fear and anxiety and addressing those psychosocial issues that come along with pop. Because that is such a diagnosis that people come in and they are so upset and freaked out and so wound up about this diagnosis. And then everything that they're reading online is scary, scary, scary. I just really love that you're bringing in this evidence-based approach, removing some of the fear, giving people their, I shouldn't say permission, but giving people this safety around movement. There's so much fear around what can I do? What can't I do? Can I even exercise? Can I lift my baby? And I, I love that you guys are addressing some of the psychology of it too. I think that's just amazing. Yeah, I I think that's a place where I'm in awe of and have learned so much from Haley's depth of understanding and her own personal journey with being really, truly deeply affected by a diagnosis of POP as a fitness professional, right? What do you do with that? When the conventional wisdom is you're not lifting more than a gallon of milk for the rest of your life and maybe do the rest of your exercise lying on your back. Those are irreconcilable things. And how do you really speak to the grief and the pain that people have that is compounded by most often, but not always, the kind of perinatal experience, which is itself quite a whirlwind. And for me, I think really seeing the effect of doing it wrong and seeing what people came to the table with in terms of experience and in terms of really being very vulnerable with their own anguish. I mean, true anguish, suicidality, things that are really beyond anything I think I was prepared to deal with as a clinician Mm -hmm. makes you very quickly realize that there is no choice other than to write that way. How can you in good conscience do anything else than that, given the pain that people really do feel and the ways that you start to see that medicine has really dropped the ball for them? So to me, as soon as I saw that, it was like, okay, I'm there, show me how. And really learning from people where we fall short has helped me try to learn how to do better. And seeing that has allowed me, I think, to try to translate that better to providers. And I hope that comes through in our educational programming. But I really do think the message resonates because that's the current that underlies what people are thinking. And they're not even always sharing. The people who come in and share that with you in clinic are, I think, the rarity. I think a lot of people don't have the ability to be that vulnerable. But at three in the morning on Facebook, they really are. And that has really been a profound and humbling experience on my end, for sure. So many people seem, I would say that there's an undercurrent of tension when they show up, if we're speaking to prolapse, and they're asking about what can I do and what can't I do. And 
more than maybe some other diagnoses we treat, people with this come in and they they want what's going to fix it. And it has to be fixed. The prolapse right. needs to be gone. And you can almost see the relief wash over them if you're able to get to that emotional current and speak words around it, which is amazing when it happens and plenty of times has not happened. And can you tell us more about your treatment philosophy, maybe even beyond prolapse? Because from teaching with you, I've noticed that this is not limited to a diagnosis. (laughs) (laughs) You know, your ability to speak to nuance and bring in education along with evidence in a patient-centered way. So if there's a way to explain it, could you? I've actually thought a lot about this in preparation for this conversation, how do I even articulate the way that I try to do things? And I came on a decision to try to use the word autonomy, because I think that speaks to what I feel like I had to start honoring for myself and what I feel like I really had to start honoring for my clients. I think the personal autonomy as a provider is the only way that I can survive emotionally doing stuff that is hard and stuff that is involved in people's emotions and and the depth of what I think we're asking people to share with us is making sure that I can show up as myself and practice in a way that sits well with my conscience, is honest and is candid and lets me remind myself constantly that this is the other person's life and I am in this space sharing that with them, but I cannot put their success or failure on my own shoulders. And then I think in the client's autonomy, we barely give people the opportunity to be autonomous most of the time. And like they're adults. Well, we're treating adults. (laughs) (laughs) Caveat, but everyone else is an adult, even if they don't act like it. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Like how revolutionary to just be straight with people and not to be harsh and not to be saying, this is my philosophy, take it or leave it. But to really say, I'm going to lay this on the table for you and you're going to tell me what you think and we're going to talk through it. And I'm going to tell you candidly what I know and what I don't know, what science knows and what it doesn't know. And let me be also really frank that I'm going to do my best to help you in these ways. And I need you to help me in these ways. And this is what I think we can do together. And it doesn't always resonate. Not everybody's looking for a therapeutic alliance. They don't, they think they want it, but they don't really. (laughs) And those people don't come back and I honor my own autonomy by saying, wow, look at the way I showed up for them. That's the way I feel good. They didn't want it and I can't lose sleep about it. That's the other thing. Old me would have cried about it and emailed them trying to apologize for whatever I did or didn't do and try to get them back and whatever. But it's really trying to say you have prolapse or fill in the blank diagnosis. Let's sit with that. I need you to tell me how you feel about it. And I'm not going to drop this diagnosis on you with my hand on the door. I'm going to make sure we have 30 minutes left in the session if I ever use the term prolapse with somebody for the first time, because you absolutely do not want that person going home and Googling that on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're putting a loaded gun on the table with a lot of these diagnoses, and you have to be prepared to follow that up with, and here's what's next. And here's how we deal with this. And I am here every step of the way. And this is normal. I use the word normal a lot because it is. And you are normal for feeling sad or you are normal for feeling angry. And let me just call those things out when I see them. 
and let's be honest about what makes sense for you to do to treat it, right? Here's the hundred best things you should do, but no one's ever been able to do a hundred things a day to work on their prolapse. So how can we make this work for you? X person in front of me in the individual with the life that I am trying to address. And that looks different for everybody. It looks different for a CrossFit athlete versus somebody who is entirely sedentary and is really not interested in exercise. How do you make both of those people feel like they are getting the best care? And I think that's really by asking them and learning from them about what that looks like, because you really have no idea what it looks like. It's putting a lot of ego aside, which I think is ultimately helpful for our longevity as providers. Because <laughs> that's, that's a lot of pressure to save all of those lives in one day. But also really, like, you are there on equal footing with the client. And you are there as the expert consultant. And I think that putting on that hat is what has helped me be the kind of provider that I am now and feel like maybe I can survive a lifetime of clinical care because it is tough. And I, at least now that's the iteration that feels survivable and productive for me. How did you get to this point where you are so wise and every time you speak, I feel like I walk away with a, a new perspective on care. It's been just an absolute pleasure to work alongside you and sit in with some courses or collaborate, but there's always a story behind <laughs> how someone gets any amount of great knowledge. So whatever feels good to you. Could you share how you got to this point? First of all, thank you. That is very kind of you to say. And I'm glad that I have made that impression. I certainly don't always feel like I show up quite that well. But I think that a lot of what I experienced to get me to this point had much more to do with personal growth than it did professional for a long time. And I think that for better or for worse, the idea for pop-up was presented to me right around the time when I was very quickly careening towards a very traumatic divorce and my life in many ways being just totally exploded and left in pieces in front of me. And in the process of that, I think I got to a place where in almost every aspect of my life, it was this realization that the way that things have been cannot continue. Hard stop. This ends because it absolutely cannot sustain itself anymore. The way that you're dealing with your relationship, the way that you are handling your own self-care, the way that you're working professionally, all of these things, the way that you are in the world is not working. I remember so vividly, there was a week where a patient came in. I was working in private practice and I was by myself. My clinic owner had been on maternity leave and I was running the show by myself. And I would just go in between patients and lay down on the floor in a dark room, lock the clinic door and just try to cease all functions for 30 minutes because I was just fried. And this patient came in and handed me a muffin and said, I don't know what's going on with you right now, but I felt like maybe you would want this. And I just started crying. She was there for stress incontinence. Like she was the most 
straightforward, pleasant. There was no drama with her. Like we weren't talking about feelings and hopes and dreams. And and I just lost it and was like, I'm sorry, I'm going to need a second. This is just like everything about everything is too much. And then a patient with a lot of perinatal anxiety and depression came in for vulvar pain. And as she was telling me her story, I started crying too, which is wildly inappropriate. This is not about me in the slightest, but it was just this kind of weight of the psychic pain in the room. And that was the breaking point. That was the like, your ego is just shattered on the floor. There is no putting this back together in the same way. And the way that you've been practicing where you put the weight of other people's experience on top of your own and carry that is also not working. And that was through a a lot of therapy. I learned that was something that I really tried desperately to do in my marriage was try to assume responsibility for that person's happiness and fulfillment and ability to achieve their goals. And turns out that doesn't work very well to do that. And it's kidding yourself that you have control. It's taking away your own ability to value your boundaries and sense of self psychically. So I would say it was really that I had no choice. And as soon as I started approaching my life a little bit differently and putting those pieces back together, I started to see other people differently. And to see the space in my clinic room differently as what can I create for people and what can I see in people that I maybe didn't recognize before and how can I feel okay about being more authentic myself about what I really want people to know. What facades can I drop? What fake expertise can I stop having? We shouldn't find answers where there are none. We shouldn't be presenting rules simply to present rules. We shouldn't be putting on a veneer of being more expert than we are when the true expert in that situation would admit that they didn't know. When the true expert would say, here's why this didn't work. I'm sorry that I didn't catch that thing that you said. How do we work together to fix this? Instead of panicking and trying to come up with a way to not admit that there had been a loss of communication. I know that you both have felt that where you're like, oh my God, I'm just going to fake it. I have to pretend like I know what I'm doing. And like people see through that so quickly and it feels bad. And when people tell me that they're so happy that they felt like I was being honest with them and I wasn't trying to sell them on something and I wasn't sugarcoating it, but I wasn't telling them that they were broken because they aren't. I think that creates a different space. Again, for the right person. I'm not everybody's cup of tea, but I think that there has been magic with many people because I I hope that is the space that I created. And like you say, if you are showing up authentically, at least you can go home at night and live with yourself and be happy with the, the day that you put in because yeah. the days that you promise too much or sugarcoat things too much are the days that you go home and think, did I just completely bullshit that person? Yeah. Am I setting them up for failure because I didn't give them the true amount of information and you go home and you are feeling guilty and that little seed of guilt eats away. And I think that if you have that, it gets additive, right? Every single day you go home and you're like, 
that didn't feel so good. What didn't feel good about that? And so I think that the authenticity point is really important. I think that's a, a wonderful thing to strive for. Yeah. And thank you for sharing your story and your personal aspects of it. What stood out to me was how you said you dropped the ego. Because I've found personally, not that we have the same story, but we have many <laughs> overlapping areas to it. Personally, I also found that as I started to not focus on myself and whether I was getting them a certain outcome and whether I was good enough, I could actually see the person in front of me. For the first time, I felt, oh my God, they're scared or like they're angry or that person is sad. And I think before that shift in awareness I would notice someone crying or snapping and I would just get reactive to it. If they were angry with me, I was angry at them. Yeah, totally. How could they treat me like this? Like, <laughs> da, 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 da. And once I started seeing the person in front of me, it, you diffuse everything when you can say to them, this sucks for you. Or like, this is really affected your stress outlets because you can't exercise the way you used to. Mm-hmm. That must be hard. And you can almost see the relief again, or sometimes the emotion, sometimes it needs to come through. You can see that. And I think it builds so much more trust than pretending to know everything is just being human with them for a moment. We don't need to treat that emotion. We don't need to fix it. But when we're in ego mode, I think we can still tell something's wrong. At least for me, if I would just work harder to fix it. Totally. And I, I think that you really said it right there, which is we can't fix how they feel. And I don't think anybody's ever told me that before. Has anyone sat you down and said your patient's going to be sad and you can't make that better? You can't. Even their therapist and a good medication can't a lot of times. They're just bummed or they're pissed off. And if you're sitting there trying to not only prescribe a good exercise program, but also take on the weight of trying to just make them happy and fix the sadness that they feel like, let them have it. That is that is their right to be sad. And it's not a statement on you. It's a statement on the situation and life sucks sometimes. And I think allowing that to be the case is not a statement of failure. But I think most of the time we do take it on as a statement of failure. And for physical therapists, I think we tend to be a high achieving bunch, but you can't study your way out of that problem. Yeah. And I like being good at things. I am good at school. It's always been a strength of mine is school. All of the tests and the things that one has to do to get high numbers on your tests. And then all of a sudden you're in this human interaction that you cannot study your way out of. And I think people have tried to, and I think that doesn't really work. And somehow you have to say, I hear this, that you feel this way. I'm sorry that you feel this way. This must be really challenging. And to stop, to say Mm -hmm. that and to put the period on the sentence and to stop talking is the hardest thing (laughs) in the whole world because you want to say, so what can I do to make it better? You, you maybe can't. And no one tells you that. And maybe there should be a line in PT school somewhere where they, they just drop that there and, and leave it. And maybe people won't notice it until they have to actually pay attention to that later. But yeah, I think for a, for a group of fixers, we should probably be told that we can't fix 
every feeling that people have. Yes. Oh my God. I emphatically believe that we should have a course in PT school about relationships. What is a healing relationship? What is it not? What does it involve? What is it not? Yes. Okay. Go ahead, Sammy. Cause I'll just go <laughs> off on this. I have, listen, I have spent yeah. some time thinking about this oh. one. <laughs> oh, me too. And I, what I was going to say is I've been thinking about this, but my point that I keep coming back to is I wouldn't have been ready to hear it. I just wouldn't have been in PT school. I would have just been like, Oh, what is this BS class? I want to go back to ortho and learn X, Y, and Z. I want to put my hands on some muscles and some joints. I don't think it would have made sense until I had gotten into the room with a patient where my license is the one on the line. I'm the one running the show. I don't have a CI in there. Those are the times where you start to feel the weight of those emotions. And I just don't know if a student would be able to fully understand it because you just don't have that experience yet. I didn't feel the weight of that stuff until residency. I got out of school and I was like, whoa, so different. So I don't know what the solution is. I, I, I agree. I think we somehow we need to get this message out and PTs need to know about these things. But gosh, when is the right time? And it sucks that we all have to have these separate but parallel stories. We all have these stories of the reason I changed my practice is because I literally had to. I couldn't do it the way I was doing it anymore. All of us yes. have said that. Every single one of us. That and right. so it sucks that we have to yeah. all go oh, through yeah. it. And maybe the only way out is through. I don't know. But there's got to be a better way. I agree. Well, I'm an optimist and I'm all about optimization at the same time. Listen, if we can spare some people some pain, we got to at least give it a go. And maybe you wouldn't have absorbed it. That's a great point, Sammy. That's (laughs) probably something I don't want to acknowledge. But I think we could at least warn people. I think just like my instructors always said to me, you're going to keep learning. You're going to keep learning. You can never stop learning. The amount of times I heard that, it's never going to leave my brain. But nobody was like, did you know you're getting to an emotionally challenging field that will require you to develop high levels of interpersonal communication in order to feel good about what you do? Never. (laughs) I mean, just never. It was like... It was like, if you know the anatomy and the kinesiology and you know how all of this works, then you're going to find the right treatment and by gone, they're going to get better. And I just felt blindsided by it. I think a lot about opportunity cost in physical therapy school these days and the choices that various programs make. And like, God, if someone had just taken the four hours that we spent lying to ourselves that we could tell the difference between a grade two and a grade three lumbar PA. And And, talked about lumbar psychosocial factors and true predictors of chronic pain. Or literally just told us to go do anything else. Don't even get me started. I, I think that there's a clear choice that's still being made about even implicitly how we budget our educational time, what we value in education, What we continue to support manual therapy fellowships, what are we saying about what we value and what is going to be effective and where where you need to spend your 45 hours honing specificity of techniques? Why do we not have fellowships in things that are equally, if not more potent than manual therapy? I think that there are really some places where we can put our money where our mouth is, but the prestige associated with certain types of therapy 
or adjuncts to therapy, the core parts of it, I think really still do place value judgments on what we think people should know and what we think we should value in our students. If we say you should come into the lab on the weekends and just crack your classmates' necks until you can do it perfectly, and yet we don't say anything about practicing skills, or you should go have six hours of your own personal therapy to talk about your own bullshit. All of that stuff is implicitly still telling people what matters and what doesn't. And I think we have the power to change that. I don't think we can always develop a perfect class where we role play and think it's cool, right? It's dumb. It feels dumb (laughs) until you're really in the situation. (laughs) But I definitely rolled my eyes through a lot of those classes. But but I also do think that we can really better support the areas that people need to feel good about themselves as they progress professionally, but also just be more effective therapists. And I think those things go hand in hand. One of the things that you touched on there was that a lot of these psychosocial skills that we have, these relationship building skills are considered an adjunct. They're not considered core. They're considered something that we throw on at the end. And I think in reality, so much of what we do is communication and also related to patient expectations. So much of it is guided by the psychology and not the physical. We're not treating robots. We're not mechanics. And we are getting trained to be mechanics. Yep. 100%. I will disagree a little bit because I've thought of this quite a bit. And we talk about how the people who are going to make it as physical therapists have the soft skills. I've heard that everywhere I've gone all the time, even in PT school, you've got to have the soft skills. The problem is that we think that they're an innate set of personality traits built into people and you either have them or you don't rather than understanding them to be skills that need to be fostered. Emotional intelligence is a type of intelligence, just like you can study and get better at studying and taking tests and things. You can get better at learning how to interact with people. And that's what an intensive course of personal psychotherapy is, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty much like a fellowship (laughs) in emotional intelligence. Yeah. So I disagree there because I think we know it. I think part of where our professional struggles is how do we develop it rather than letting people self-select into it who care a lot, who display altruism and letting them get to the point of burnout before sharing these secrets. How can we intentionally try to curate it along the way? And I don't think there's a perfect class either. Part of me could see this being in PT school. I could definitely see it being a way larger part of residency than it currently Mm -hmm. is. Absolutely. Interestingly, in my experience with manual therapy fellows, they're the ones who start getting some real good motivational interviewing. And so it's crazy that you have to go through three levels of education and get to the most exclusive tier and then we give you exceptional training in people communication and reading them and talking to them. Doesn't that strike you as funny? But I think speaking of soft skills, though, nothing is anything except how you present it or sell it to somebody. I I use sell in a generous way. I'm not saying it in a cynical way, although I certainly could say it cynically, too. But do I care what you do with your hands if what you say to the patient gives kinesiophobia or poorly contextualizes what you're about to do or the way that you 
describe your plan of care either creates autonomy or dependence. Nothing exists in a vacuum and no technique or no decision that you make and share with the patient is without context or without connotation. So if you're about to tell somebody, here's how to do a squat to pick up a heavy load, because I know you've hurt your back in the past, think about the possible outcomes on the same person in front of you with 10 different choices of one word. And we never get taught the power of the soft, quote unquote, soft part of what we do. The technique is lifting training. But what does that mean? What does that create in that person? It entirely depends on whether you've read the room, whether you've asked them anything or internalized anything about what they said and read between the lines about it. And then all of a sudden, you've either created a strong, resilient person who's interested in progressing on their own or somebody who does a robotic hip hinge to pick up a piece of paper from the floor for the rest of their lives. No one tells you that. I never got told that until I saw what happened when other people did that. And those people came into my office and I was like, oh God. And I went through all of the patients I'd seen in the past and was like, girl, you got to get your house in order. You cannot be one of those people who creates these reactions. And now I am even more careful about the language that I use than the interventions that I try, right? All of a sudden, it's a completely 180 change in how I see things. And I think that is the component, the softer component, that is the thread through everything we do that may be the most important thing that we do. And that's why we're so careful about the language in pop-ups. We painfully chose each word in that whole set of documents because we know that each of those words that somebody reads sticks with them in a good way, a neutral way, or a bad way. And we have the power to choose the word that we actually want. So pick the right word. So important. Oh my God. I literally could go off on a tangent about this topic. I have been seeing this so much in all of my patients is the harm that we do with our language. We have the potential to do so much harm. And I've been on a tear about nocebic language, nociceptive language, whatever you want to call it. That is something I am seeing in action so often. It is mind boggling once you start looking for it. I, I had this patient I'll describe I seeing him for his hip and he went in for an MRI of his abdomen for an unrelated reason. And the doctor had noted, oh, hey, you had arthritis in your back. It looks like the arthritis might be causing you some issues in the next few years. I think you're definitely going to have some pain down the road. He tells this guy this. This guy has no pain, no issues with his back. And what the hell did this doctor do except set this guy up for pain and hypervigilance about his condition? That sort of thing is something I see over and over in our field, too. It's not just in the medical field. The PTs do it. Everyone does it. And it's really frustrating to see because I think that it is so hard to undo those negative expectations once they're set in place. It just is incredibly frustrating. So anyway, that's my little tangent. I'm going to stop now. Let's stay there. Yeah. So I've had the interesting experience of I came up in the world of ballet, which let's not get started about the ways in which that experience was potentially harmful to me. We talked about that in therapy, but I, as a hypermobile human, I am, 
ballet really was a place where that was rewarded. It was encouraged. You were held up on a pedestal as being somebody with a gift, right? The universe has made you flexible. How lucky you are. And the experience that I had when I was in PT school and (laughs) shockingly, in the midst of the prolonged crisis of faith that PT school is for a lot of people. How do you possibly navigate all of these things happening at once and the workload and whatever? And I started developing chronic nagging neck shoulder pain. We all know the like the schneck, the place between the the shoulder and the neck. (laughs) And it was it became debilitating. I would have to leave class. I would be laying down in the back of the classroom I went to my instructors, I went to my classmates, I went to other PTs, I paid for physical therapy, and I got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And everything anybody ever said to me was basically, look at your giant head on this tiny little hypermobile neck and your segments are just all out of whack and this one doesn't move right and we need to align everything better or you're just going to be disabled for the rest of your life. Do these low-level chin tucks forever and use a heating pad. But I need to adjust your transverse processes or whatever. Pick a thing. And I was in really bad shape. I was not okay. And physical therapy (laughs) was an active detriment to me being okay. And as a physical therapist... I didn't recognize that until I look back on that experience now with much more perspective and see, look at this spiral that my profession took me on and look at the difference in the way that my same body was viewed by two different groups of people with different motivations and different understandings of things. And frankly, the only way I started to feel better was to stop listening to physical therapists and start listening to fitness professionals. And all of a sudden, fitness professionals were saying, well, why can't you do overhead presses with weight? Why can't you do heavy deadlifts and squats? I don't understand. And I was like, well, it's because my parts are just falling apart. And they're like, pick up this thing. I'm like, okay, I guess. It was somebody really saying, I think that's bullshit. You should pick this up. That, That got me to a place where I feel okay now. So I think seeing that physical therapy was the weak link in that chain for me, and my experience is not everybody's, but being a part of the system that created a lot of disability for me for a long time has made me feel very sensitive to the people who I can either help steer out of that or the people that I see who have already been in that for a very long time. And I think that the first person experience of that and with much healthy distance has been really powerful for me in deciding how I want to handle things. And what I heard you say earlier was that you're not necessarily against treatments. And I I don't know if this has taken it too far. You may not even be against manual therapy, but it's all about how you explain it to the patient, what you're telling them is going on, I'll say that my bias is I may choose to put my hands on someone, but would I tell them I'm adjusting their C1, C2 because it's out of alignment? Maybe not, but maybe what I tell them is this may help your nervous system. This may create some relaxation for you. I want this to feel good and you be a part of it. You give me some feedback on how you're doing. 
would you say that's accurate or are there treatments that you think PT just has got to stop? I, I think we certainly have to stop requiring that everybody build two manual therapy units, right? Like we are unfortunately still even having that conversation. And that was why my first job ended in a mutual parting of ways, which is me saying, I don't feel like billing ultrasound today. And they were like, too bad, you should bill a passive unit for every patient. And I was like, I don't think that's ethical because I don't think they need it. And there was a very clear, this is how we keep the clinic open. And me being like, sure, but maybe there might be a better way to do it. And we couldn't reconcile that. But I think that deciding that skilled physical therapy is manual therapy and that the things that AIDS do is exercise is a huge mistake. And I think that we're still operating under that paradigm a lot of places. I am very lucky to not work in a place like that. But I also think that we have to feel like we have the ability to do whatever we need to do with somebody. Do you put on your health coach hat? Do you put on your fitness professional strength and conditioning coach hat? Do you put on your sex therapist hat? We are none of those things. And yet in many spaces, we have to be a bit of all of those things. And being able to talk to your patient and say, what do you need from me today? And being able to provide that to the best of our ability and within our scope, that might look really different for everybody, depending on what their strengths are. My strengths are not manual therapy. And the less I do it, the less good I feel about it. And so it it becomes a a self-fulfilling cycle that I tend to go to the things that I feel much more confident about. But if you choose the thing and it's the best use of time based on a collaborative effort between you and the patient, and you are clear about why you're doing it, and you are clear with the patient about why you're doing it, and all of those things line up with evidence-based practice, which is evidence funneled through the patient experience and values, then great, cool. Yeah, let's do it. But I, I, I really don't think that's what I was taught. And it feels subversive to like, I don't do manual therapy. And people are like, oh, okay. Like, it's still physical therapy. Oh my God, don't be so scandalized. Physical therapy is not manual therapy. It's just not. And I think that shouldn't be even the conversation anymore. In a lot of places it is. But I think we need to inhabit the role that's best for our patient. And then we just need to explain that to them and get their consent for using their time in that way. And if we can do that, then they got what they wanted from you and you got what you wanted from them and everybody's happy. And then you check in next week and see if that's still what you need to be doing. And it starts with redefining what you think physical therapy is and perhaps letting go of this cookie cutter approach. My first job was a mill. It was literally a PT mill. I saw people for a 30-minute eval, Oof. two patients came in every 30 minutes, oh. two patients every 30 minutes, which would overlap into my eval time. So as I'm doing an eval, oh I have two God. patients out on the floor that an aide is running through exercises with. And the exercise and the coaching around the exercise is literally the most important part of what I do to help quiet fears or support <laughs> them or encourage them or what have you. But let me stay back on topic. <laughs> and 
this mill was, it was just such a cookie cutter approach. It was back to you evaluate them, you give them three exercises, everybody comes on and starts with an active warm up or heat. <laughs> and then everybody gets my 10 minutes with Monica where I do manual therapy and try to listen to them. And I've always cared for deeply listening to people's stories. So that was a challenge. Yeah. How do you give great psychologically informed care in 10 minutes when you don't even know what that is, but you feel like you need to go there. And then I would pass them off to the aide and the aide would do whatever. And then we, we would finish with something, ice or heat. And I was billing an hour for everyone. And now I'll have a 15 minute session with someone. And I'm like, that was incredible. That was great. They walked out of there. They know what to do for the next two weeks or week. I feel like I supported them. I didn't do too much or too little, just enough for them to work on, to advance, to get it, just enough for me to check myself, maybe reassess something, ask more questions, and and not enough to do harm, and not so much that I'm just throwing on things for the sake of throwing them on. Yeah. And hopefully at the end of somebody's experience with you, and it doesn't happen if they come once, but it happens if they come four or five, six times at least, if they spend an extended period of time with you. My other hope is that they leave with a little bit of a cognitive buffer against the rest of the world. Everything else is telling them that they can never bend their spine or internally rotate their hip or pick a thing. Everything in the world is weighing in the other direction. And if you can just convince them that they're okay (laughs) and they're normal and their body is not just waiting to implode if they do one thing wrong, but also life sometimes is physically uncomfortable and there's nothing they can do about that. Life is uncomfortable sometimes and that's okay. And as a physical therapist, I acknowledge that life is uncomfortable. If all of those things are the message that they get underlying what we do. And that's why I choose my words the way that I do, because I want them to come back for the other body part that they have an issue with to me later. And there's already a foundation of understanding what we're going to be doing and why. But then I also hope that something else happens to them and they don't come see me because they understand what's going on. They don't get derailed. They don't get three MRIs and however many injections and then get scheduled for a surgery a month later. They understand that they can navigate the world in a lot of ways themselves, and they have the ability to stay on what I think is an evidence-based and healthy and self-efficacious path. And I have my special place in my heart is the younger women that I do upper body training with, because that's what turned things around for me. (laughs) And I'm like, yes, you go, girl. You're going to lift your five-pound weight, and someday you're going to overhead press. 100 pounds. And they're like, no way. I'm like, yes, there is this ability to change what people think is available to them that unless you believe it, you can't sell it. But at the same time, we really have the power to change how people feel about their bodies very profoundly, because we see the ways in which people change it profoundly for the worse. And so hopefully we get to get that message in there and they see us as an example of living that out. But it's hard. It's exhausting to choose your words that carefully. I am fried at the end of the day. It's mentally fatiguing when you have back-to-back people who present with that type of history and high catastrophizing, high fear avoidance. They're pulling for you to get the answers 
in a way, they're almost pulling for you to confirm that they are, in fact, broken and hopeless. Oh, yeah. But to me, I'm like, ugh, don't put that on <laughs> me. No, I don't want to tell you that. Yeah. The trap is set every time with people like that. And those are people that I don't know whether I can change their minds. And I'm not going to go to them and say, you're wrong. This isn't correct. But there are people where I'm like, what if I told you that I didn't care what your posture was? And they just, I'm like, yeah, what if I told you that it was really okay? And then I show them that I'm slouching because a lot of times we're on video. This is how I sit in my chair sometimes. And I sit in a very strange contorted way that I often sit in my chair and this is okay. And they're like, what? Sometimes you have to just challenge people. And if you can create some comedy with it, I think it also helps. But it's just, those are people that it, it is an ongoing negotiation. And you have to be careful and you're not going to get it right. And I've definitely messed up. I've definitely done the, I just learned about pain science thing where you lecture them for 45 <laughs> minutes. Yep. On these exciting neuroscientific discoveries. Right. Definitely did not play those cards right. But I think we teach by showing and doing with people what we want them to do and by embodying in what we do with them, the principles that we want to hopefully guide them. But I think it's a big tide the other direction. It's really hard, but we have to do it. It is harder and we also have to do it that way. We know too much to go back, right? Yeah. Yep. If you're really practicing evidence-based practice and you see how much psychosocial factors account for people's outcomes, positive and negative, let's not forget there are positive psychosocial factors like acceptance, curiosity, those things help too. Mm -hmm. But if we sit with that long enough, it's uncomfortable because it doesn't give you answers, but it raises more questions. Whereas the biokinesiopathological approach comes at you with answers, but it doesn't account for the questions that people have that they will naturally ask, why? I've been rubbing that muscle every day for three (laughs) months and it just, it still hurts in my hip. And you're like, maybe you haven't rubbed it the right way. (laughs) (laughs) This foam roller has spikes on it. You should use that instead. No, totally. I desperately wish it wasn't that way. Think about how easy our jobs would be. I thought my job was going to be easy when I was in PT school. I was like, oh, I'm going to come out, I'm going to fix people, and it's going to be so great. It is the most desperately challenging thing I have ever done. It's like being in therapy for myself every day in a lot of ways. And I think that's the way it has to be. And I also think that the appeal of the other way, if people are on the fence, if people are questioning, it sucks. It's hard making that choice and making that transition and doing things wrong again that are different than what you used to do. It is a whole other growth process. And when you still have a choice to go back to the old way, it is really tempting. And maybe that's why people have to hit a rock bottom before that's the inflection point. I don't know. But I showed up to work and I didn't have words for people because I know what I want to tell you, but I also can't tell you that. And I don't even know how to explain things anymore. And I'm just as lost as you. <laughs> like, yeah. Let's do some manual therapy. Like it was just, it was these moments of really saying, I don't know what it is, but it's not this. And I think we have to offer people a way through that and an acknowledgement that it's hard. And sometimes it's the pit of despair and... <laughs> 
confusion, but that's where the expertise lies is being okay with that pit of confusion. It's getting more crowded down there. There's company. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah. It's so hard to be okay with that uncertainty. We want so badly to roll into our sessions and and have all the answers. It is so, so, it feels so good. to tell a patient why they're having pain and it's because your posture is like this and your upper back is too tight and that's why your neck hurts and it feels in the moment it feels really satisfying to give them that concrete answer and it's when you go home at the end of the day or when they're not getting better or when they walk in and they look so stiff because they've been holding themselves in military posture all day long and not letting their spine bend because you told them it wasn't okay where you start to go oh shit that's not that can't be right that cannot be right. So yeah, it's tough. Monica uses this phrase all the time of a PT growth spurt. It's painful <laughs> when you're going yeah. through a growth spurt and it sucks and it's tiring and takes so much more energy, but there's no way back. You can't ungrow. And when you try to, it'll be uncomfortable because you will try to. For <laughs> anyone out there who thinks you get it and you got it, what Anne-Marie is describing, what I try to get across with the growth spurt is you're going to keep growing through them. And you will backslide. You will find yourself (laughs) at some point being like, I think your piriformis is tight. (laughs) I think that's the reason that your SI hurts. You're going to have that pregnant patient. And for me, I'm finding that when I have that urge, it's actually okay rather than being mad at myself or whatnot. But when I find myself really thinking that I need to study up on a patient more, with a sense of desperation, not a sense of curiosity. Oh God, I don't know enough. I need to immediately take a prolapse course. I've probably missed some important interactions with them and maybe missed just how painful this is or how fearful they are or how long and deep their experience with pain has been. And I'm trying to search for a quick answer, which is very different than saying I've never come across blank condition. I need to learn more. Or I wonder what's out there about such and such. To me, they're two completely different energies. And when I find myself in that sense of desperation and um, clinging to the old things of the past, it's usually an indication that I'm getting pulled into a growth spurt that I have not voluntarily decided to go down that path. which by the way, is a choice. (laughs) It's so much easier when you can acknowledge it. Yeah. And that feeling of needing to look things up speaks more to that ego that we really need to drop. It's all about me and what I don't know instead of the patient and their experience and how I can be there for them. Yes. And we have to talk about it. I've been lucky enough to have people who I trust and feel able to be vulnerable with who are ready to say, and why do you think that is? Explain your reasoning there. I caught an assumption that you made. Can you explain that? And as you crash and burn, trying to explain (laughs) yourself, it's, oh, I got to go that far back. The introduction section to my research paper is based on (laughs) a pile of lies, right? You got to dig back all the way to the things that you thought were truth. There are a lot of truths in life, but in physical therapy, a lot of these are built on things that were assumed before. And they get lost in the sands of time because we just build on things that we assume to continue to be true. And so you have to just go back and say, can I trust this? I don't know. Okay, let's go back and evaluate that. 
And I think we talk ourselves into a corner pretty quickly. And then you realize the trains of thought that you hopefully can go back and revise and feel differently about. I think externalizing the internal thought process is something that we don't do as clinicians. I think we do it, hopefully, if we have good mentors in your residency. But I think as adults, as, as real world adult physical therapists, I don't think we ever externalize why we're doing things or what we assume. And that's also something that I found really profoundly valuable is having to be held to account in some ways by people who were maybe a little bit ahead of me in that process. That for me, at least personally, has been really valuable. And I hope to offer that through mentorship when I do it or in conversations with somebody who's in a space to, to be doing that with me. And showing someone that there is a different way. I do think that to a certain extent, you need to have it modeled for you or listen to it and have those synapses connected in a new way to where you can start to do it yourself. And so you can maybe sit down and journal about the hard patient and be like, da 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 and then realize, oh, okay, <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. um, or even talking it out with someone else. My boyfriend is in tech. He's not at all in health. But sometimes I'll talk to him about a patient. He'll be like, but why? Or like, <laughs> how come they have to do all of that stuff or why don't you think that would work out? And it's a little shocking sometimes when I can not be mad about it and get defensive. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. It has always been really interesting. So I would say your mentors may not even be within the field of PT because when it comes to interacting with people, you really need to find someone else who interacts with people in this autonomous sort of way. And that's something that he definitely has going for him. He's always managed accounts, but he interacts with his people in tech. Like you are an autonomous human. I expect this from you. Mm, and yeah. so we can have those conversations. So I would say psychologists are incredible. If you can ever get mm -hmm. alone time with a psychologist to discuss <laughs> pay them. But if they're in your <laughs> clinic and you get to talk to them, it could be so amazing to get insights. Agreed. Yep. So Anne-Marie, we love to end our podcast, our fabulous conversation here with a lightning round, much more lighthearted. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Let's do it. First question. What is your favorite drink at the moment? I'm not going to say that margaritas have gotten me through COVID, but they've gotten me through COVID. <laughs> what flavor? I use a very classic recipe at home, and it's equal parts lime, tequila, and Contro, shaken and strained over some ice. So it's very limey. It's also somewhat potent, and I definitely recommend it. Easy. It's easy, too. Shelby, link that in the show notes. Anne-Marie's recipe <laughs> I think we for should. margarita. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> I think so. The, probably the critical piece of information from today. Next question is, what is the best book you've read lately? I hate this question because in my older age, I have become so much less of a reader than I used to be. As a kid, I was always reading. And now I'm super into podcasts. I essentially live with podcasts in my ear, on my commute, walking the dog, folding laundry, whatever. And so I would say I'm a voracious consumer of information through podcasts as opposed to anything else. 
I would say my favorite podcast I've been listening to lately is there's one about Odessa High School in Texas and how they're navigating the last year. And there's a lot of personal level interaction with the kids and the teachers. And I really thrive on stories about other people where I get to hear them in their own words talk about what's going on, because I think my view is very narrow of the world. So I would say that's where I get my external perspective. Nice. I like it. What is the first thing you do in a challenging situation? Ooh, if I can, I try to remove myself from it, which is an adaptive and also a maladaptive behavior in some situations. But I often do my best processing with a little bit of time and a little bit of remove. I don't do well in heat of the moment conflict or things like that. That's why I don't work in the ER. But I really often just need to go sit in front of the TV and knit and think about anything else. And then I can come back to it with a little bit less arousal and a little bit less reactivity. And my personal goal is decreasing the amount of time of removal that I need. (laughs) It tends to get a little inconvenient. But yeah, that's what I've learned about myself. If you weren't a physical therapist, what would you do for work? I, for a long time, very seriously considered a career in journalism. I think it speaks to a lot of the podcasting that I listen to as well. I was an editor in my high school newspaper, and I loved what features journalism can do. It can be super fluffy, but it can also be the kind of stories that are really powerful in sharing perspective and connecting people. I think doing the kind of education that we all need a little bit more of about other people. Until I pulled the plug at the last minute, I was full steam ahead going to Northwestern journalism, doing that whole thing. And then I made a hard pivot to physical therapy instead. This is not usually a question, but I've got to ask what brought on the hard pivot? I think it was something with a realization that career-wise, it was maybe not a super secure, high-paying gig. So I picked physical therapist. Which is a super luxurious, (laughs) high-paying gig. (laughs) The irony is not lost on me at all. But at the time, as an 18-year-old, it felt very clear to me that one was a more prudent choice than the other which I still probably stick to. I think the security of the job market is probably a little bit better in physical therapy. But yeah, journalism spoke to an interest of mine for sure. But I also think that the kind of practice that we've been talking about today also might scratch a lot of that itch for me. So I think that I've recognized that in myself too. Definitely. I I can see a lot of how you share stories and you write with so much purpose whenever you do. You're surely harnessing that inner desire. It's nice to have the writing outlet for sure. So how do you define being a conscious clinician? I think at a very fundamental level, a conscious clinician has to be self-aware to the best of their ability. I think that's an ongoing process. But Without being self-aware, we cannot in any way understand how we're interacting with other people and how we can better interact with somebody because we're coming to that side of the equation without understanding what we're bringing to the table. That is the far more critical part of it for me. But I think the other part is consciousness of the other person. And again, just seeing the person in front of you. And I I think that is revolutionary in a lot of ways. I just hope that we on our end of the street 
can take care of that level of self-awareness to the best that we can and help show our client what we can offer. So Anne-Marie, how could people follow along with you? Where can they find you? How can they connect? I have a rarely updated, very uninteresting personal Instagram. So don't try to find me there. But Pop-Up has its own Instagram page. And that is at Pop-Up Lift. It's also popuplifting.com if you want more information about the specific programs or to purchase them. And my personal website is just annemarieeverett.com. And that's where I do a little bit of my California-only virtual practice and where I would be doing any personal updates. Excellent. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for your time today. We really enjoyed these conversations and I learned a lot in the last hour. So I appreciate you coming on today. I'm so happy to have talked to the two of you. I think that this is unfortunately too rare that we all get to share our perspective and talk about these things. I just, I wish there was more opportunity for it. And I got a lot out of today. So thank you so much for facilitating. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We probably have to get you back on. I'll just say it now. (laughs) I see it in the future. So we'll send out an invite. Come back anytime. (laughs) Great. I'll be an amateur journalist yet. Yes. (laughs) Happy to help. (laughs) The correspondent. Yeah, that'll be good. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.